And as much as you want to provide person-centred care in an enormous facility with 100 people, you simply can't. You mm. just can't do it. doesn't matter how hard you try, you can't because the numbers just kill you. So you have to work with much smaller numbers. Silver Adventures is a content and technology company dedicated to improving the lives of older adults through immersive virtual reality experiences. And this podcast is our opportunity to hear from industry experts, thought leaders, and passionate individuals to share with you their knowledge, expertise, and experiences. Welcome to the Age Care Enrichment Podcast. I'm your host, Ash Deneef, and today's guest is Dr. Rodney Gillec. Rodney is the Managing Director of Aged Care Consulting and Advisory Services, a consultancy that spends a lot of time helping non-compliant aged cares attain the standards required for operation. He's also starting up his own not-for-profit provider, Community Home Australia, starting with their first facility, which is due to open in Canberra soon. Rodney is passionate and opinionated, and in this episode, he shares with us some of his experiences in compliance advising, as well as his ideas on how we might see longer lasting change in our industry. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Dr. Rodney Gillec. All right. Well, Rodney, thank you so much for joining us on the show. A pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And for those of our listeners who don't know who you are, can you give us a bit of your background and your story? Yeah, I certainly can. I, I'm a registered nurse um, by profession. I've worked in the, in the aged care sector for about 30 years now, both for the Commonwealth and for providers of residential aged care services. I currently have a consultancy called Aged Care Consulting and Advisory Services, and I'm the managing director of a new not-for-profit organisation called Community Home Australia. Great. And I'd love to talk about Community Home Australia in a little bit, but let's let's look at the aged care consulting and advisory services. So you work closely with care providers that have failed aspects of their accreditation. What do you often see within these organisations? Yes, yeah, certainly that's that's a bulk of our work is is working with services that have either identified issues themselves or more frequently had issues identified by. Uh, the commission in terms of failings in, in accreditation visits or, or assessment contacts. Um, and so we work directly with those providers to put together plans and address the issues that they may have. We, we see a whole range of issues, every, everything from minor areas through to systemic issues across multiple uh, aged care standards. And so there's no one thing that we we see consistently apart from, I guess, governance. And, and governance is an enormous issue for providers, particularly individual providers, standalone providers. But we're, we're starting to see more issues coming up in governance from larger organisations where the executives may spend a lot of time in their head office but not so much time in the individual services. Mm. And so there's a disconnect between what the organisation is saying is happening and what is actually happening in the services. Wow, so this would lead to a lack of communication amongst the different levels of the organisation, right? 
Very much so. And and a, a real disconnect between the things that are required to practically run a service and the systems that are being put in place by the people that are often, you know, hundreds or thousands of kilometres away from the service, usually sitting in a capital city. Hmm. So we see we see issues particularly around policy and procedure and about auditing and management of concerns and issues that are raised. They're, they're probably the main things that we that we often see and that the agency or the commission has been picking up more recently is around risks and how the organisation identifies risks and then actually manages those and addresses those those risks in a timely manner. Wow. So if you're working with a provider to try and improve a certain aspect of their service, it might turn out that a lot of the time you're looking at structural issues as well and, and how to facilitate a, a better flow of information and a more supportive environment. Is that the case? I, I think there's structural issues both in terms of systems and reporting and, and responsiveness. Um, and then there's also basic structural issues around buildings and and the way that the you know the layout of a building can impair the the staff's ability to actually meet the requirements. So we we have a, a lot of older buildings in this country that you know were state of the art back in 1980 when they were built but are not not built in a way that enables residents to be provided care that is dignified and and private and respectful. Well, wow. so how would you how can you help an organization overcome something as as big as as a physical structure of a building? Is it you just provide advice and you say this is what you'll need to do or do you step them through the process as well? Um, there's there's usually two components of that. One one is actually fixing the immediate non-compliance and fixing it in a very practical way, or almost a, a band-aid solution, if you like, to address the immediate concern and then working with them to give them advice and support on how they need to change longer term. And I can give you an example, a really good example of that. We assisted a, a service that had failed privacy and dignity, um, and it was around their bathrooms. So the service was an older building with the old ablution block bathrooms. They had one bathroom with about six or eight toilets and showers in it, and that one bathroom serviced about 26 residents. Wow. So that that's something that was in the day was quite usual, and this service has just never brought that up to to the newer standards. Now, the issue that the the commission had was because the doors were so big and heavy, everyone left them open, which exposed the residents. There was privacy issues. There was dignity issues. And we had, we had to come up with a solution that could be done very, very quickly because the commission only gives you certain very short timeframes to fix things, but also wasn't going to cost an enormous amount to, to rectify because the longer-term solution is to rip out the bathrooms and redo them. Mm. So the solution that we actually came up with was a little bit outside the box, but if any of you have been to an old-fashioned butcher's and you've mm-hmm. seen the old butcher's curtains, the translucent yeah. plastic butcher's curtains, that's how we rectified that issue. So on the main door that was leading to the corridor, we put up the butcher's curtains 
They're easy for residents to go through, even if they're in wheelchairs or they've got walking frames, but they close immediately and they provide a level of, of privacy that wasn't there before. Mm-hmm. Uh, so is that a great long-term solution? No, definitely not. But did it resolve the immediate concerns around privacy and dignity without making it impossible for residents to access the, the bathrooms and toilets? Yes, it did. And so that's, that's what we ended up doing and that ended up passing. And then the provider then had a plan forward to work out how they were going to redesign that interior of that building to make it meet the standards longer term. Great. And calling out the two sort of stages there, there's a triaging stage where you're, you're really dealing with the immediate concerns and getting them across the line and then looking at, at longer term solutions. Do you find that organisations exhibit a similar willingness to fix both aspects, to address both parts of the problem? Um, Look, it's really dependent on the provider. So Mm. we've certainly dealt with a number of providers that have literally just said, Rodney, we know we're in trouble, tell us what we need to do and and we'll do it. Mm -hmm. And those, those services tend to rectify their issues very quickly. They they work with us to put in sustainable changes and improvements and then they go on to not have issues in the future. The flip mm-hmm. side of that is, is there are some providers that do not want to spend any money, do not want to make any changes beyond the immediate and even some of those immediate changes that we put in, as soon as their non-compliance is overturned, they go back to their old ways, if you like. So it's a very mixed bag of of providers. What we always try and do is identify the immediate concerns, fix them, but do it in a way that is sustainable as well. So we we try and avoid the purely Band-Aid solution of just going in for two weeks and fixing things. or All of the rectification of of systemic non-compliance takes at least three months if not longer, and that's why when, when the Commission issues things like a notice to agree or, or a sanction, the periods are, are usually six months or can be longer because that's how long it takes to actually put in the changes, train the staff, improve practices, change the culture of the organisation, which is really the biggest, the biggest issue, and then make, make it a sustainable change. Mm-hmm. And now the, the non-compliance issues there are linked to standards set out by the Australian government and, and something that we're seeing a lot in the wake of the Royal Commission is this discussion about where the role of government and where the role of industry comes in. Do you think the industry has any business in self-regulating itself or there needs to be external government oversight? I think the sector would love to self-regulate itself. Personally, I, I don't think the sector is capable of self-regulation only because you know I've been in it for 30 years and there, there's really been no move tangible move towards that in that period of time one of my my biggest criticisms I suppose of the sector is that unfortunately the the groups that we tend to deal with are the ones that have issues we, we don't mm. tend to go to ones that are doing it well but through those people that we do deal with, we, we see this mentality of crawling towards the minimum standard line and literally nudging your toes up against the line and that's as far as we're going to go. Mm-hmm. So, and, and look, and I understand that, that a lot of that is money-related, funding-related, 
and that's certainly been a big push of of the sector and the peak bodies is around money. But I, I think you have to have the two in tandem. So you can't just have more money if you don't have a willingness to actually go beyond a minimum standard. And from my perspective, I don't see a lot of that willingness to move above and beyond what is set out by by government. Yeah. Do you think it's possible to change the culture in these organisations to one of not just scraping through? I think there are some organisations that have and do move beyond that and they've shown very successfully that they've been able to look at alternate models, albeit within a a mass-produced kind of setting where we've got large numbers, but they're still looking at alternatives. There's a couple of organisations that have very successfully looked at diversifying and so bringing in medical centres and daycare centres and all sorts of other different services and mixing aged care with um, assisted living and independent living. And some of of those organisations have done very, very well. And interestingly, they're not the ones that are screaming with their hand out saying, give me more money, give me more money. So it can can be done, obviously. But yeah, I, I think it's it's up to the, the sector to actually put their foot forward and start moving ahead and saying we can do these things and we can look outside the box instead of just waiting for government to doll out, oh, well, this is your next move, which seems to be the history of the sector. Yeah. Well, speaking of government doling out the next move, several months ago that the final reports from the Aged Care Royal Commission were released and... It's a bit unclear at this stage what change is going to come of that. Do you feel like there's going to be the sorts of widespread and systemic change that we need? Look, I've been quite sceptical about the the Royal Commission from, from the start, really, because we've had so many reviews and assessments and, and nothing much really has changed. There's been tinkering around the sides and, and little bits of change in pockets, but there's there certainly hasn't been any widespread reform, which which the sector obviously needs. It's good to see now that the peak bodies have moved from, you know, their position of it's it's only the very few, you know, the small minority that are letting us down and the rest of us are really good and we're doing a fantastic job and this is evidenced by our 500 awards that we give out to our members every year. And so, so they've moved from that to, okay, we've got a problem. And I think, as, as with most issues, the, the first step is to admit that you've got a problem. I just think it's, it's coming back to that same old, we'll wait for the government to tell us what to do. They, they just appear incapable of saying, we're going to do this and this and this, and we expect our members to do these things, even though the, the two larger Peak bodies have now come out and said we expect providers to sign up to our, you know, our voluntary codes and all the rest of it. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether they actually put their money where their mouth is and when providers don't do the right things, they boot them out. Mm. And that's traditionally not happened. So there's the peak bodies have been very much protective of their members and their membership. And they've been very reluctant to actually boot anyone out for not doing a good job and, and you know, almost bringing the sector into disrepute. 
So do, do I think there's going to be widespread reform? Probably not. I'd be very, very surprised. One, because the Commonwealth can't afford it. And so unless, unless they're able to come up with some alternative funding arrangements that are actually affordable, they're, they're just not going to be able to afford the changes that people want. And that's, that's going to be an ongoing issue. But as always with, with aged care, aged care stays in the news when there's something horrific happening and when nothing else is happening in the world. And as we've seen over the, over the last 12 months, the Royal Commission barely got a look in because it got wiped off the face of the planet by COVID. I made the comment the other day with all of the issues that are happening with the federal government at the moment and the politicians I wonder how long it's going to be before those pesky boats start coming back again because it's all appears to be diversionary tactics to get to get everyone's attention away from the issues that need to be addressed. Mm. Well, that links to something that Sandra Hill said on the podcast a few weeks back when she was mentioning that there's a push towards getting a, a groundswell movement going here and getting change will only really happen when the people demand for it. Do you think that's the most likely driver of change? Honestly, I think so. I think it's it's been evident with the NDIS and how, how that's kind of evolved out of people living with disabilities have, have demanded better services and more person-centred services. Whether the government is willing to go down that path with older Australians as well is yet to be seen, but there certainly needs to be a push. And I, and I think that's been one of the the biggest issues for the sector is the sector itself is so disjointed that there's no one push. So I I just found out this week that there's another new aged care peak body. Um, So we now have seven. And so there's been an attempt, you know, this year to bring them all together under the, you know, the collective or collaboration or whatever they call it now. But it's the same people. That, that's been one of my biggest criticisms. Is it's the same people sitting at the table, pushing their own barrow, and it's the same people that have been there for the last two decades. So while there's younger people coming, and I know Lassa has their, their next-gen program, but while you see these, these younger people and newer people coming into the sector, they're not sitting around the table at the important in the important times when things are being decided and things are being argued. So it's the same eight or ten people that have been there since I was first at the department 25 years ago. Mm. And so you're not getting any change and there's this great resistiveness to change because providers themselves have invested an enormous amount in this system. This system has been around for a very long time, you know, even before 97 with the new Act. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't that different. The funding was still very much the same. The the sector was very dependent on Commonwealth funding. And so the sector has been the same for a long, long time. And there's no great impetus to actually move from that. We still have providers that are building, you know, 200, 250 bed homes so, you know, while they're continuing to build, that, that is not going to change. Yes, they're getting nicer, but as I often say, people go to a, to a five-star hotel for a holiday. They don't live in a five-star hotel. They go to a Michelin-starred restaurant for a, you know, a luxury night out. 
They don't eat in a Michelin star restaurant every night of the week. And so while we we seem to be moving to cater towards that higher end of town that can afford those services, really the bulk of aged care services hasn't haven't changed very much in the last 20 or 30 years. This episode is sponsored by NNT. NNT understands that a uniform is more than just the clothes you wear. They're committed to providing distinctive uniforms that empower healthcare professionals to perform at their best. Having dressed healthcare workers since 1962, they continue to evolve and innovate their designs and fabrics. NNT balances functionality with style and comfort to produce high-performing uniforms to help support you every day. NNT is part of Workwear Group, a West Farmers company, and they're offering listeners of the Age Care Enrichment Podcast an exclusive discount of 10% off site-wide using the promo code NNT10. That's double N-T-1-0 for 10% off site-wide at nnt.com.au. Offer ends 30th of June, 2021. Terms and conditions apply. Well, you're, you're launching Community Home Australia, your not-for-profit aged care provider. How are you going to tackle this problem differently? What different services are you offering? The main reason that, that I established the organisation was really to look at what we could do differently, what we could do in terms of small scale that would allow people to continue to live in their community and not have to go into a building where they shared their personal space with, you know, 50, 100, 200 people. So our first home in Canberra, which opens up very soon, hopefully in the next next couple of months, mm-hmm. will really be a, a test case for us to see will this work. On paper, it all works. And basically what I've done is taken all of the learnings from the last 20-odd years in running aged care homes and dialled it down to just having six beds. So, and look, we've had to be flexible. We've had to be innovative and and look outside the box because a lot of the traditional aged care services and providers are geared up to provide services for 50, 100, 200 people. So Mm -hmm. when you go to them with, I've got six beds, they look at you and go, well, it's not worth my while. So through that process, we've been able to engage with a number of um, service providers that are either not in the aged care space at all or are looking to get into the aged care space and are working in other markets or in other countries and basically partner with them to implement some really innovative stuff. So Mm -hmm. um, we're, we're looking at a whole range of things like that. The universities are getting on board, so that system we're actually embarking in a research project with three universities in Australia that's part of a worldwide research project on improving aged care um, and residential aged care and falls prevention. So I guess our biggest difference and the feedback that we've got from from a number of, of quarters has been our ability to be flexible and say yes. So mm-hmm. we we have no huge board that has to mull over things for three months before they make a decision. We have a board of four and we can make a decision in an hour and we're open to doing things that are not the norm. So there's a museum in Canberra that has been trying to run an aged care 
project with aged care providers for a couple of years now and hasn't been successful in getting anyone to say yes. Mm. So when they came to us, it was a no-brainer. Yes, come on, let's do it. So it's all about linkages and keeping everything small-scale residential. Yeah, wow. And I think maybe to people who have more of a, a background in traditional care services, this might not seem like a financially viable model. How is it that you can run this this service without it being, without making a loss? Is it you have to do some rejigging here of the traditional system? Yeah, look, that, that was certainly a big part of it because although I'm personally funding the whole startup, uh, this was not something that I wanted to fund for the rest of my life. So the whole project had to be self-sustaining. It will obviously become more self-sustaining once we have more than one house and the plan is mm-hmm. that once this house is up and running that there will be more than one house. But it had to be self-sustaining as one. That was certainly a juggle. When it came down to we only have six guests and I want to put on staff 24 hours a day and my staffing ratio is one to three Mm. 24 hours a day with a registered nurse on site five days a week full time it was certainly a a challenge but we we wanted it to be a not-for-profit so we've deliberately gone down the not-for-profit path and it's not set up or intended to make an enormous profit it's it's set up to basically break even and make enough money to be self-sustaining to be able to afford its improvements or to expand. So we've prioritised. We don't have an enormous marketing budget. We don't have trips away for all of our executives. Our executives, you know, our board are not on $100,000, $200,000 salaries. So we've basically said what is important for the organisation, the care of the guest is important and what we're able to provide And so that's what we've prioritised. That's why we've called it Aged Care Your Way. Whatever you want, our immediate answer will be yes and then we'll work out how we're going to do it. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to say no unless it's illegal or it's going to be detrimental to other people, then our answer will be yes and we'll just work out how we're going to do it and we'll get people there. So that's really been the big push of, of the house The feedback we've got so far has been enormous. We've been running a fundraising program that's been really well supported, which has been fantastic, and that's allowed us to buy a whole heap of things that will directly improve the life of the people who come and live there. And we've already got the first person. The first person is all lined up, ready, waiting to come in. They're NDIS approved and they just want to come because they need care, they don't want to go into a a facility. They've looked at all the facilities, they just don't want to go there. The lady who's coming in had one question, can I continue to ride my bike? Mm. Yep, no-brainer, easy. If that's what you want to do, that's what you can do. It's really about flexibility and it's truly person-centred care. And as much as you want to provide person-centred care in an enormous facility with 100 people, you simply can't. You Mm. just can't do it. doesn't matter how hard you try, you can't because the numbers just kill you. So you have to work with much smaller numbers. 
Yeah, very exciting. And uh, we'll all be watching very closely to see how it goes with the launch. And this could be, you know, the, the start of a new wave across Australia in, in re-examining the structures of aged care services. You've also worked within uh, culturally specific aged care scenarios as well, right, with Gallipoli Home and St Elizabeth Home. How did those experiences differ from general care? I think that the best thing, if I can say best thing, that, that those experiences taught me was to really ground me in person-centred care because when you're dealing with residents from other cultures and you're not from that culture, it really opens your eye to looking at that person just as an individual, mm. as an individual human being that, that has wants and needs that you as the provider needs to address. And I'm sure he, he won't um, go cross at me for, for saying this, but a number of years ago I, I was speaking to Father Nicholas, who was the CEO of St Basil's Home in Sydney, And he posed a question to me and it was around dealing or or assisting people that in a a culturally sensitive way. And my response to to him was their culture doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. Mm. And and he looked at me at the time and I'm sure he thought I was a raving lunatic. But that's very much the way that I approach people and that Community Home Australia will be approaching people. Your, your background is irrelevant. We look at you as an individual that comes to our service and what are your needs and wants, whether they be religious, cultural, food, personal, it doesn't matter. Even though we're only going to have six people, I would fully expect that each of those six people will have very different needs and supports and very different activities because everything is going to be tailored to them as an individual, that was the best lesson I, I learned um, in those organisations. And look, we've through my consulting, we've we've worked with the Sri Lankan community, with the Cambodian community, with the German community, whole range of of different ethnic groups. And each time you you work with those communities, you learn something else because they bring something else to you, and you add that to your bow. I suppose, and it, it reinforces that notion of you just have to treat people as individuals. Mm. And it yeah. sounds very simple, but for some reason it's just not. Like I, I see all of these things about rainbow communities and welcoming, accepting gay and lesbian communities, and I look at it and I think, so shouldn't we all do that? Like yeah. it doesn't impact on me who you decide to have as your life partner. And it's the same with all of the the ethnic groups that that we've dealt with over the years. It doesn't kill me if I have um, Muslim clients that need to pray often Mm. during the day or wash during the day. So it's just something that you incorporate into the care that you provide and it's the care that that individual needs. So to me it's very simple. Yeah, that's great. I think uh, maybe on its surface it sounds bit counterintuitive at first you go oh but surely the culture is important yeah it's important to the individual but it's not something that that should govern broad decisions because there shouldn't be broad decisions they should be person-centered Rodney we've covered so much today and and uh, I really appreciate the you know the fresh take that you're bringing to this is there anything else you wanted to cover today before we leave it there 
No, look, I, I think it's it's been fantastic. It's been wonderful to meet you and, and to speak with you. The, my only parting thing is that I, I just hope that people are able to look at what we're doing and use it as some kind of, you know, inspiration for them to do things themselves. So we're taking on this project in a very different way that's normal for aged care. So normally organisations do these kind of things. They keep all of their secrets. They won't share anything. They'll charge people to come and have a look at their service. There are some services that, that are charging up to $1,000 for people to come and visit. You know, it's, wow. it's insanity. So the whole aim of this is we're trying this. This, this is a risk that we're taking to make this work but please if people want to come and have a look let us know if you um, want to take parts of it and try it in your own community go for it we'll actually help you so Mm. this whole project is about getting an outcome for people who require care and services particularly those living with dementia and then particularly those with early onset dementia so our aim is to enable the country to provide services that meet the needs of people, not build an empire that is mine that I can, you know, lord over like, you know, some some king. We're more than happy to share that. So one of the things we've already said is particularly for called communities, if this is something that interests you, contact us. We'll help you set one up for your community and you can you know, start on that path of providing care services for your community as well that's tailored to their needs. So that's my wish. We're, we're open. We're happy to talk. We're happy to share. And we just, we really want the outcome for the individuals. Fantastic. And people can find out more at communityhomeaustralia.org. That's correct, isn't it? That's correct. Yes. Perfect. Rodney, thank you so much for your time today. Pleasure. Thank you. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Age Care Enrichment Podcast, brought to you by Silver Adventures. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And if you're enjoying it, please leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. If you're interested in finding out how immersive virtual reality experiences can enrich the lives of older adults, visit the Silver Adventures website today at www.silver, that's S-I-L-V-R, adventures.com.au See you next week.